We're on a mission from God. Wendy? So I got that going. Darling? Looks like I picked the wrong week to quit sniffing blue. Light of my life. We enjoy your films. I am a human being. I thought they smelled bad. On the outside. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're re-watching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in real time, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today marks the 40th anniversary of the release of Falling in Love Again on November 21st, 1980. It was written by Stephen Paul, Ted Allen, and Susanna York from a story by Stephen and Hank Paul, directed by Stephen Paul, and released by the International Picture Show Company, which I'm guessing is code for Dad. Yeah. <laughs> well, H- Hank Paul is an executive producer yes. on this. And on he all is, of his son's films. He is dead. <laughs> Writer-director Stephen Paul based the story on his father's memoirs. That's gross. What? Really? Yeah. Oh, God. I didn't know that. That's that's worse than I thought. Yeah. I thought it was just some 20-year-old making up a story he didn't really understand. If you told me this movie about an asshole's midlife crisis was written by a teenager, I would 100% believe you. His dad, Hank Paul, was the executive producer. His mom, Dorothy Coster Paul, was the casting director and associate producer. His sister, Bonnie, was cast as Hillary Lewis, the daughter of uh, the Elliot Gould character in the present. And his brother played Pompadour, the lead character in the 40s. Yeah, the director's brother. Not, yes, not the director's Kelly brother. Yeah, the yes. director's brother. Uh, the director himself played the Stan the Con character in the 40s. We open on a shot of the Hollywood sign. Elliot Gould's character lets us know in voiceover how much he misses New York. He orders a chocolate milk with seltzer water in it, which is apparently called an egg cream. Mm-hmm and then admits in voiceover to having a midlife crisis. That sounds terrible. That sounds gross. It looks <laughs> gross. It sounds gross. I, I, I am actually going to get some seltzer water next time I'm at the store. Don't do You're it. You're not going to try this. I want to try it. I want to try it. Um, yeah, everything I, else this guy does seems brilliant in this movie, so I'm definitely going to try the drink he likes. Well, because I've heard of egg creams before, and I've heard of people like, enjoying them. Um, are you sure you're not thinking of Cadbury cream eggs? No, no. Because uh, even like Cause those uh, are delicious. Because because uh, Spider-Man Noir from the Into the Spider-Verse when he was he likes th- egg creams. Yeah, he's like I like to drink egg creams and I like to fight Nazis a lot. <laughs> All right, well that's a, that's like, a right. ringing endorsement. He says the only thing that makes him feel any better is egg creams and that therapy, all the different forms of it that he's tried, have been a waste of time. We cut to a woman on the phone at work making orders for a business. This is Gould's wife, Sue. She wants them to attend group therapy because Elliot Gould acts like a child. Though, child, I think, is the wrong word. Yeah. I think he's just a jerk. He's not like that immature dad character. I... He's he, not Robin Williams and Mrs. Doubtfire. No, he doesn't act like a child in like being a goof. Yeah, he acts he's like a just child idiot. in being completely not self-sufficient. Yeah, like he and, needs her to do everything for and him. And super stubborn and pouty all the yeah. time. We learn Gould's name is Mr. Lewis as he enters the clothing store that his wife is working at. It looks like he's an accountant at this company, but he's already made clear several times that he would rather be an architect. He flips through some really awful looking buildings that he sketched out and then tucked away in his accounting paperwork. And then and then compares himself to Frank Lloyd Wright. Yes. 
Or as Jane Curtin joked earlier this year, Frank Lloyd wrong. <laughs> a man interrupts Sue on the phone to ask for a blue blazer and she tells him to ask someone else because she and Harry are leaving for New York tomorrow and they're taking the kids. So you can't help me right now? Nope. <laughs> You're leaving tomorrow, Talk lady. to somebody else. Also, how I about, have somewhere to be How about I can't talk hours. to you because I'm on the phone doing yeah. other shit? Yeah. <laughs> I just needed to tell the audience we're going to New York and we have children. <laughs> random customer we're taking the children i okay <laughs> at home she's on the phone again to someone else with more exposition for us apparently the new york visit is for a high school reunion the whole family sits around the table and talks about how excited they are to visit new york sue apparently shares harry's affection for egg creams even though we never see them consume egg creams in the 40s or mention them again after this point well he he drinks one at the beginning though right but not i mean that's present day yeah yeah we we it's not like this is a thing that they did in new york in the past and he talks about how they're so much better in new york and no one ever has an egg cream in new york for the rest of the movie yeah also aren't they in the same class are, are they not in high school together or are it's, they in different I guess grades they're not i don't know i don't i don't even know if they go to the same school i don't know if they okay. go to school <laughs> 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 they don't do it in this movie that's true they study occasionally. Yeah. Each other. Sue calls to confirm their hotel reservations, but for some reason hands the phone to Harry in the middle of the call in case he wants to do it. I don't even understand this. And then she doesn't call. Somebody calls her and she's like, yes, I just wanted to confirm the reservations. Like, I'm sorry. The f- you answered the phone. Yeah. And they <laughs> called you and you want to confirm. I don't know no, what's happening. No, I wanted here. you to confirm your reservations, <laughs> it's lady. Like, it's like, uh, the, <laughs> that's very nice, ma'am. I just want to let you know your car headlights are on. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's like, this is, I'm calling you. Uh, he takes the phone from her and then he starts to lecture his family on the importance of checking and rechecking. But they've heard this speech so often that they're saying it in sync with him. It's not like the old days. You have to check, check and recheck. And then without saying anything into the phone, he hands it back to his wife for her to finish the call that yeah. she was doing. Well, that's, I think that that is showing him being totally incapable. But I don't understand him going through the you have to check and recheck because I don't think that's. Yeah, he's, he's, he's not, not Mr. That Preparedness. Guy. He should, that maybe that's her speech and he was just going through it with the kids. I don't I don't get it. Either way, it's weird that she was on the phone and like looked at him like, oh, I'm sorry, did you want to do this? And then she hands him the phone and he never talks into it. And then he gives it back to her to finish this call. Yeah, Their dynamic is just odd through the whole movie. Harry wakes up at 3 a.m. and walks to his desk. He puts on a record, which wakes up Sue. And she's like, oh, he's listening to his record. Not like, fuck, we have to get up early, you idiot. Harry looks at the framed photos on the wall from his childhood wedding pictures friends and suddenly we fade into the past the pictures were in black and white but the footage is in color one of his friends kestenbaum who they call the idiot is looking through binoculars young harry snags them away next a bigger kid nicknamed meatloaf takes the binoculars and by now the string around idiot's neck is so tight that he's almost choking the last kid is nicknamed stan the con and we finally see what they're looking at cheryl herman sunbathing on a towel the queen of tar beach because she's sunbathing on the roof of her building this earlier time period is 1944 these kids look like they're maybe 14 to 16 years old Mm -hmm. implying that elliot gould is in his early 50s in the present yeah the timeline is a little wonky i think they say later in the film 
that he's 17 because they talk about him potentially getting drafted. Getting next drafted, year. yeah. Uh, for the record, Elliot Gould was six years old in 1944, unless this movie isn't supposed to take place in 1980 for the present scenes. Cheryl Herman comes I mean, out of her. They're sorry. credited as present. Right, but present when? Yeah, they don't but say I'm just saying we, we watched it today. Like, the, like they could have yeah. yeah. shot it in. But I'm just saying, I don't think I don't think you call I don't think you credit people with the word present unless That's you mean true. it to, to be the year in which it was shot. It definitely makes no sense because if it is the present, then they graduated in 1944, and in 1980 they're making their first trip to New York for a 36-year high school reunion. <laughs> well, I'm sure it was shot in 79, and they didn't give much thought to the fact that it wouldn't come out for another year. Yeah. So it would still, have been a 35th year. 35 is still a weird denomination <laughs> to go back to, to New York for the first time. Cheryl Herman comes out of her building and is immediately followed by this swarm of teenage losers. Harry explains the Tar Beach nickname as a reference to the fact that she spends so much of her time sunbathing on the roof. Harry assumes that she liked the five creepy guys following her everywhere she went. Yeah, of course. Yeah, ladies love that. The boys find a man named Frank Cacelli, who is cleaning the windows of his shop while singing a song about baseball. It's, a, it's another young man their age. Uh, here we learn Harry's nickname was Pompadour, and suddenly we're throwing a fifth kid into the gang, a redhead named the Gooch. Somehow... They've heard through the grapevine that this guy sings like Perry Como, so they offer him Como as a nickname and invite him to join their gang. He agrees, and his initiation consists of them tearing his pants off and running away. Back in the present, whenever that is, we see Harry lay down in bed across from his wife. The next day, they're singing road songs as they park the car. Harry is lecturing his children about how terrible their generation is. He says his generation didn't have guns and violence and drugs. Because, as world war ii yeah. is going on yeah <laughs> harry and his children stand in a very shallow river i hesitate to even call it a river and he tells them a bit more about how california is shit and the bronx is great he cannot shut up about it he tells them that people don't use their legs enough they don't make things they don't grow things but compared to the bronx i think california grows a shitload more stuff yeah yeah he sits down with his family on a picnic blanket and a boom mic is visible. Over oh, them. yeah. Like, not just a little. <laughs> yeah. He brags that in the Bronx, people communicated and weren't afraid to care. We cut back to them on the road later that night. Why are they driving? I don't know. This is, I mean, like. You I have think it a... was her idea to drive. I think he makes reference to that, it's that it was her suggestion. Because you, I, you are going to go to New York for like a weekend. And, yeah. And you're from Los Angeles. From LA. And you're going to spend more time on the road than you're going to spend in the city. But they, they weren't going to have this fight on the plane. They so. also have a business to take care of. Like, you're just going to take off for two weeks because you decided to drive cross country. This is dumb. These are not brilliant people. They're having an argument about the operating hours of the store. Harry also thinks that mannequins are a terrible idea. He's wrong, though. They sell clothes. Yeah. It's a clothing store. <laughs> In their hotel for the night, Sue speaks with someone from the store again. Someone made a big sale, and she's excited about it. After the call, she undresses and notices Harry staring at her. Got Gained weight? Everybody gains weight. Getting older. Everybody gets older real nice guy she tries to initiate some action and he tells her he wants to go to sleep so she puts on a robe and walks out of the room in voiceover but importantly not out loud terry tells sue he loves her and reminisces on meeting her for the first time 
His father worked at her dad's clothing shop, and he stopped by to borrow money for candy, joke books, and movie tickets. He notices young Sue, played by Michelle Pfeiffer here, with a halo floating over her head, but I think it's just something behind her is lit in a way that it looks like that. It's just a cheesy shot. Another employee notices what he's staring at and tells him not to waste his time because she's way out of his class. And they're right. Yep, 100%. Mm -hmm. From now until the end of the film. (laughs) Yep. We cut to Harry outside of school waiting for young Sue to come out. She gets in her boyfriend's car and they drive away. We see Sue and her boyfriend Alan riding horses around a track and complimenting each other's horsemanship. I thought this was like his fantasy of what they do without him. And then suddenly he's just fucking there in the bushes watching them. And they're also like doing like that classic uh, like, you know, like socialite laugh that oh yeah and it turns out it's just horrible writing and direction Mm -hmm. and he but he's a creeper throughout this whole film like he's a serious stalker he tells idiot that he's got a crush on sue wellington and later stan the con comes out at their clubhouse and says hey where's harry and idiot says oh he's just sick i was happy to see como here playing cards and that uh publicly pantsing him wasn't just a gag that they actually initiated oh, no, he him was into the group. totally in the group yeah stan the con doesn't believe that he's sick and idiot says oh he's sick he's not in love he's sick stan drags the information out of idiot and tells pomp aka pompadour aka harry that he can set them up on a date we iris out on a shot of sue coming out of school just as her boyfriend grabs her Michelle Pfeiffer is speaking with a British accent for all of these scenes. Yes, it's so weird. Because her father doesn't have a British accent. No, her parents don't really have an accent. And she does cover this by saying something like, oh, I spent I spent a, some years at boarding school. But you're like, first of all, if it was just a couple of years, you shouldn't have an accent. And second of all, like, your present day person barely has an accent. Like, it's, yeah. it's almost imperceptible, any accent that modern day Sue has. So why do you have such a heavy accent? Also, Michelle Pfeiffer can't do a decent accent in this no. movie. No, it's terrible. So all of these choices are bad. Yeah. I mean, I, I know that Susanna York is from England. Yes. But but her accent is even just more like East, like like upstate, like East Coast, uh, yeah. like Long yeah. Island kind of thing. I was yeah. going to say, she almost has that uh, mid-Atlantic thing mm-hmm. happening. Alan drops Sue off at the medical sciences building and the whole gang follows her in. Turns out she's a nurse here. Stan the Con thinks that she might be a good kid and they move on to phase two of his plan. He catches Sue on her way out of the building posing as someone working on behalf of the war effort. He says they are here trying to collect scrap metal for use in military equipment. She is completely on board to help with the scrap metal drive and Stan the Con tells her that Harry Lewis is the man in charge and he'll be hosting a meeting at the Chinese restaurant tomorrow. She says the restaurant is right around the corner from her home, and she'll be there at 7 o'clock tomorrow night. The next night, Stan tells Pop that he's arranged a blind date with a cousin of his, but when he gets there, Sue had three other girls with her, and he just decided to stick to Stan's fake story. Well, and um, some of the other guys are there, too. Yeah, Stan is definitely there, but two of the guys are posing as waiters at this restaurant. Like the waiter serving them uh, in the first shot is just Como and he's wearing like a fake Fu Manchu mustache and goatee combo. And then we see Stan sitting at the table with the girls and then Idiot is pretending to be a second waiter giving them food. The date basically ends when Stan shoves Pomp bragging about him and they accidentally knock a bunch of food into Sue's lap. Outside, Stan pushes Pomp to offer to walk Sue home 
and she accepts. We fade back to present, and Harry repeats to his family what a great guy Stan was. Isn't he in jail now? That was years ago. He was framed. Great. As they walk the streets of the Bronx at night, young Harry and Sue discuss his plans in the architecture world. He wants to rebuild every structure in the Bronx, repurpose the streets for walking, parks, and gardens, and install escalators for some reason just <laughs> in general we're gonna put more escalators i like that the 1980s view of like paradise is escalators everywhere yeah. <laughs> like That's it's just a need. mall well we we kind of yeah, did it in the 90s we're over it <laughs> sue seems impressed by all this talk harry admits that there is no scrap drive and she's obviously upset about it harry confesses that stan cooked up this whole story because he told Stan that he saw her somewhere and thought he liked her. And then she's like, wait, where did you see me? And he says that my dad works at your dad's company. And she gives him a peck on the cheek and tells him good night. This is why I don't think they go to school together. Yeah. But uh, she says she thinks that he's nice, even though he's been lying to her for four straight hours and admitted this whole date was a joke. I mean, at least he told her. Yeah. He didn't keep going I think I'd it. still be insulted for more than zero seconds, though. Yeah. But she's not mad at him. She's mad at, at, Stan, at Stan. Who because may or may not be to, at fault. Who he knows? was lied to, too, and he just As went far as she it. knows. Yeah, that's true. He pops into a bakery early in the morning to grab two whole wheat muffins because he learned they're her favorite. He returns to her building and then climbs the fire escape and creeps around the outside of the structure to leave them by a window and then he knocks on it like when he jumps up this fire escape like the doorman is standing right there yeah. Yeah. like i'm pretty sure i would have called the cops if i was the doorman and be like this is a fancy building you can't go climbing around the outside of this place but she hears someone knocking at her window and she goes and collects these muffins and laughs about it or bagels or muffins muffins, muffins. muffins. Yeah. And, and he's the man of the door not the man of the fire escape <laughs> yes you gotta pay a fire escape man if you want one <laughs> I'm in charge about? of <laughs> the doorman keeps people out of the door. Oh, it's not a thing. <laughs> That's a terrible joke. <laughs> FDR uh, created a lot of fire escape men. He made a lot of new jobs for people. We cut to Alan sitting in a living room with Sue's parents, and they're insisting that he call them mom and dad. We cut back to the rooftop where the Queen of Tar Beach is sunbathing, and Harry's voiceover says the muffins weren't working to win her over. Young Harry approaches Cheryl Herman the Queen of Tar Beach, to ask her advice in pursuing Sue Wellington. Cheryl agrees to help, but tells Harry not to ask why. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't either. I also don't know why she's helping him. I think the why is because she likes him. He tells Cheryl that he's in love with this girl, but that she's engaged to Alan Childs, who's a big sports star and an amateur boxing champ. And it should be said that Cheryl here, this Queen of Tar Beach, is significantly older Yes. Of these boys mm -hmm. and married yeah is she yeah yes they talk about her husband cheryl tells him that sports aren't everything and offers to teach him how to kiss they're suddenly making out on her couch and i really wanted it to just fade back to the future with his wife and kids and sue just goes wait what the fuck like <laughs> when did that happen <laughs> or, or, telling the story <laughs> yeah. or, or she she like somewhere in times like just disappears yeah. and she's replaced with cheryl <laughs> oh god uh we cut back to sue's place where she sits with Alan on the couch. She offers him cookies, but he's ignoring her because he's trying to study. He stands to collect her textbook from her bedroom when he hears a knock at the window and opens it to find Harry. 
He accepts the bag of whole wheat muffins from Harry and delivers them to Sue. And he's not even mad yeah, about it. He's yeah. not mad. He takes them and actually gives them to Sue. He doesn't throw them away. He doesn't try and pick a fight. Seems like a pretty nice guy. Yeah. But when he walks back into the room, he says, God, isn't he pathetic? No, I think he's quite nice. Then you're pathetic. Well, <laughs> I thought that was a pretty solid comeback. I think. <laughs> you're letting this guy hit on you right in front of me well and not only that but like they're obviously still a couple and she's acknowledging that with him in the room and so she's actually just kind of being a dick by leading this guy on and taking his muffins like just shut it down or break it off and go out with him yeah later we see sue and harry holding sketch pads on the stoop in front of a building (laughs) <laughs> this never pays off at all yep it's just two of them are holding full-size sketch pads and they don't do anything with them alan pulls up in his fancy car and sue tells him that she's busy and that it's none of his business and then he leaves we cut to the diner later as alan enters and shoves harry hard harry's friends ask why alan would have done that and harry says i have no idea even though he's been hitting on alan's yeah. girlfriend 24 yeah. 7 well, right and he handed him muffins yeah <laughs> And and now he's spending time with Sue. That's what like, he should have said. Like, I don't know why he's so mad. I gave the guy muffins. <laughs> <laughs> is, is that like an STD? Yeah. <laughs> he got him secondhand from Sue. We cut to a boxing ring where Alan is destroying somebody. Harry walks in and watches the fight. Alan's opponent is pulverized until he's hanging out of the ring upside down, moaning towards Harry. Alan moves to the opposite side of the ring for hugs from three girls so this is why he's a bad guy i guess because these girls watched him fight and they liked him and he let them hug him we get a rocky sound alike as harry beats up a fish or a stingray or some shit a flounder i don't (laughs) know (laughs) i don't know what this is we saw another rocky montage parody earlier this year with gary Busey in fooling around and uh, at the end of this we see harry doing push-ups on the back of a ferry he continues to practice punching in a wife beater and khakis as he runs along a river. Some some like police or security guard sees him running and just gets super excited. Yeah. And starts <laughs> running alongside of him. Yeah. He climbs a fire escape and then he does the rocky pose jumping with his arms in the air at but, the top of the stairs. Like the song here is so close to the original in my mind that it's it's not even parody like i would yeah. call this plagiarism like it's not done in a joking manner it's not haha funny it's, it's definitely supposed to be haha funny i'm saying this director is awful okay but oh. i'm just saying that it's it's not i don't think it's a joke so it's not parody it's if not, it's not parody it's homage it's the same thing that it was when they did it in in fooling around then what's plagiarism if not this <laughs> plagiarism is when you take it note for note and it's serving the same purpose. And and you don't give credit to the person. And they didn't give credit to this. <laughs> right. But they didn't use it note for note, and it's not serving the same purpose. In Rocky, it's supposed to be a montage of him getting better and better at fighting. In this movie, it's just, hey, remember that Rocky movie that came out a couple of years ago? Everybody liked that. Also, this movie's set in the 40s, and Rocky was set in the 70s. Yeah. So this music doesn't and even sound appropriate We don't for know this when time. this movie yeah. is set. <laughs> we see Harry practicing throwing punches into his friend's gloves, until Alan interrupts and gets a crack on the jaw by accident. Like, he goes to punch Idiot's glove and then accidentally swings through and punches Alan in the face. So he even started the fight with Alan. Yeah, it's dumb. Alan throws Harry against a fence and pummels his face for a bit, disgusting the onlookers. They're just like, 
Ugh, why why is he hap- why is this happening? Why was Why Harry- is it happening? Yeah, why was Harry even training? I in don't case know. he needed to fight Alan? I don't know. Like they didn't establish that they had planned to fight. No. Yeah. They didn't establish that he's like, you know what, I'm gonna I'm gonna beat this guy, I'm gonna win, and then I'm gonna, you know, gain her hand by winning a boxing match. Like yeah. they don't establish any plan here. Yeah. Great athletes make lousy lovers is what Harry manages to choke out through his bloodied face after Alan Yeah, leaves. this is the words of advice from Cheryl. We cut back to the present, driving at night, and Harry mumbles to himself, gee, what a great group of guys. Somehow his family hasn't picked up on how unhealthy his obsession with the past is. We flash back again, and Harry kisses Cheryl on a couch, and then they just sort of stare at each other across the room for a while. Uh, she invites him to her bedroom for his last lesson, and starts to strip for him. Another great moment to cut back to the car and have the kids go, wait, what? <laughs> but that doesn't happen. After sex, Cheryl asks what progress he's made with Sue, and he says, almost none. And she says, well, why don't you actually put together that scrap drive for the war effort to show how much you care about her? He sets about convincing the neighborhood of this scrap metal drive's importance. He fills a whole shop with people and tries to talk them into the scrap drive but they don't seem interested in it at all. He's a very bad public speaker. He feeds them a lot of crap about being patriotic and proving that the Bronx did its part, but really he's just trying to get into Sue's pants, and his friends know this. Uh, I was distracted from a lot of this scene by the face of John Deal in the foreground. Apparently this is his first film, but he's in so much stuff after this that his face really stands out. But I was like, oh, is he about to stand up and talk? I don't think he has a single line in the movie. So that stuff doesn't even convince them to like join in it is right. his wonderful speech it's stan the con yeah comes in and is like i'm gonna uh you know you got all these debts and yeah. i'm just gonna i'm gonna burn them right here and, and and then you aren't gonna owe, owe me anything and i don't even know if those are his debts to burn because he keeps he keeps uh bets for a bookie like that's right. his job and I'm but like, I, th- I think these people owe him money personally i don't know i don't know if that's clear but, but like either, either way, way they're not they're, contributing to the war effort because what they're doing is paying off their own debts to Stan. Right. And yeah. so he stands up and he says, I'll burn this page right now and all your debts will be forgiven if you promise to work on this war. And effort. then he does it right now and they could just yeah, walk out of here yeah. and the, not help. <laughs> it's just like, how much did you did I owe you? You have no idea because you just burned that page. And then he welcome has to, to admit Welcome that to he the end of Fight Club. <laughs> yeah. And then he has to admit that he burned a blank page. But yeah, it's the same thing as just knocking over the credit card building. But basically, it just means that instead of doing a scrap drive, that Stan the Con is just going to pay a lump sum to the war effort because he's buying all this scrap metal from these volunteers now. Sue and her friend Melinda are apparently here, and Melinda tells Sue that she thinks Harry is cute. The shop owner gives Como a big smooch on the cheek for no apparent reason, and uh, he seems flattered by it, though. We get a montage of kids making shitty signs like we saw earlier this year in Oh God Book 2. Lots of metal is being collected and Stan tallies it up just by looking at piles. He never weighs anything. He's just yeah, like, yeah. there's a bunch. There's a load. <laughs> but this is like the amount of scrap metal that they have on the end at the end of this is like an entire junkyard full yeah. of yes. scrap metal. Which just because seems they just shot absurd. in a junkyard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Como's so excited to be a part of this effort that he enlisted. And then we get voiceover from Pompadour saying, nobody told him how much he really was a part of our gang. I wish we had. I wonder if Harry will blame his own horniness when Como is shot overseas. 
When they cross the line over into the official biggest scrap drive the Bronx has ever seen, they all jump around to celebrate. I, w- I want to know what the second biggest was. If if, yeah. if, if this is yeah, if, if this this was enough just to get them over the edge, <laughs> the, what what were they gathering scrap for previously? Or maybe they've been past it for a few days. They just hadn't tallied it up oh. yet. I think we need There's Guinness like, to get out here and check Stan's numbers because yeah. uh, I don't believe it. Harry and Sue are walking down the street when he suddenly takes a more direct approach. Hey, you want to taste the greatest pickles in the world? Hey, don't touch my pickles. He starts to lead her to a back alley pickle salesman, and he notices his mom at the front of the line. She's arguing with the vendor because he's raised the price from one penny to two pennies, so he shuts the whole stand down for the day. To be fair, that's double your price. Yeah. Right. Overnight. It's crazy. (laughs) <laughs> and then and then she's like wait what a minute wait a minute how can how can you double the price and he's like because the cost of cucumbers went up and i have to be able to afford them to give you pickles and she's like oh and so you're gonna pass on the cost to us and it's like yeah it's like how is that my problem <laughs> that's when you got problems it's like that's not my problem that's just the cost of no, business <laughs> it's not my problem it is your problem because you can't afford pickles anymore but the vendor gets all pissed off and he shuts down for the day and as all the women are walking away he sees harry and sue kissing in the alley and that changes his mind he's like you know what i will sell pickles i don't understand <laughs> but then he calls everybody back and uh and she's like oh no your mom lost her place and he's like don't worry pickle guy remembers and the pickle guy's like mrs lewis i think you were first in line that'll be three pennies that's what he should have said uh, but he didn't he probably charged them one because he's an idiot but she asks for so she's not buying like a jar of pickles. She's buying seven pickles, four from the bottom, three from the top of this giant pickle barrel. Mm-hmm. So is he going to like reach like <laughs> shoulder deep into in this the barrel. pickle barrel? <laughs> he, he has like one of those like super long Judge Doom dip gloves that yeah. he just... <laughs> oh, he I bet he does one actually. one of those extender arms with the claw on the end. <laughs> oh, yeah. Grab a pickle from the bottom. <laughs> it's just he pulls it out in a shark toy. <laughs> we fade from sue and harry kissing to uh, a rooftop where they're kissing some more and they pop into a store called sincere gifts and then they head out to a chinese restaurant i think the same chinese restaurant where they had their first date and we fade to the present sue tries to warn him that the bronx might be gross now but harry will not hear it she reminds him how many were dying in the war? And Harry says, Not on our block, not on Wilkins Avenue, thank God. And then she says, Yeah, no, just just Como from your block was killed. Your your friend, yeah, one of the six people in your gang was killed. One sixth of your friends were murdered overseas in a war. And, and he's so excited to forget about Como. Back in the 40s, Sue and Harry walk past Como's dad's barber shop and we see his picture in the window. And his father just sort of crying there after hours. The gang sits at a booth in a restaurant and consider volunteering for the armed services instead of waiting to be drafted because they're all about to turn 18. And uh, if you volunteer, then you get to choose your service. Later, Sue suggests that Harry could dodge the war that all of his friends now feel obligated to fight in by marrying her. He already got Como killed by pretending to care about the war and now all of his friends want to go and he's just going to chill here with someone else's fiance. That's his new plan. Harry tells his folks over dinner that he's getting married and his mom is furious. She tells him that he's too young, which 
a mom in the 40s would not have said you're too young. Yeah, probably not. But also, why doesn't he say it? This, I mean, is if that's an actual thing, if you are less likely to get drafted if you're married, why wouldn't he just flat out say that? Because I'm sure they don't want him to go off and die. Well, I think you'd have to prove that you were married. She's just saying, I'll give you the opportunity to be able to say that and be accurate. But it's it's the same thing. Didn't Wasn't there... No, it was, it was uh, in Hollywood Nights, he says that if he has a kid, then he can't get drafted or something yeah. like that. Well, they better get busy. But they don't for another like 20 years yeah. or something because yeah. they, they're te- they're ki- their kids are teenagers. Yeah. yeah. Well, teenagers in quotes. One, like I feel like the the actress playing their daughter is significantly older than she's playing. Well, yeah, because and, she's the sister of the director of the film. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like she's like, but she seems like she's, she looks like she could play like 16, 17, but she's acting like she's like 13 or 12. Yeah. And it's just like, oh, daddy. Like, it's, it's like, like she's super like spacey, like yeah. she's a child. I was like, you're not a child. What What is this? But seriously, if you got married in 44, like you don't wait until you're almost 40 to have kids, right? Yeah. Like it's that's weird. not something that you normally do. So it's weird that he actually even has kids that are teenagers now if this is the timeline we're thinking it is. Yeah. What if the movie actually takes place in like 1995 and he's supposed to be like 70? Like I feel like this should have been either the Korean or probably even just the Vietnam War. Like I think it's early for Vietnam, but Korean probably works in, if you did it in the 50s. But maybe the Bronx was already gross by the 50s, so they didn't want to do that. Yeah. Are they implying, too, that he hasn't been back since yes. yeah. this? Yeah, exactly. He has he, not been. So back. he left in 44, and he hasn't been back in 35 years. Correct. This is a brilliant movie. He must really love that place. Yeah. That yeah. He's he gone back in 35 years. No, never saw his parents again. What? <laughs> <laughs> That's weird. Because he comes back. Cause he they must have home. died immediately after the film. Yeah, because he goes back home. I used to live here. It's like, are you, did you not know where your parents were? <laughs> <laughs> what happened to the old lady and man who used to live here? Did they leave a forwarding address or anything? <laughs> points to the are cemetery. you talking about the people that were dead here when we moved in? When we just started squatting on this house? There was a woman clutching two jars of pickles. <laughs> These are my top pickles, and these are my bottom pickles. <laughs> oh, don't touch the bottom pickles. <laughs> but his parents seem really weirdly disappointed that their son is going to get married, specifically into the rich family that employs his father, and they have, like, a beautiful daughter. It's it's Everything is counting in their favor, and they're like, don't do that. She's a harlot. Like, Harry's mom even calls her a tramp and says, I hate her, even though she didn't know she existed until a second ago. Yeah, I, I will say that the the mother's overreactions to everything from here on in is my favorite thing of this movie. <laughs> She's like, I'm not going, and I hate her. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, this is great. I'm actually smiling now. Yeah. <laughs> Sue's parents are also upset, but more understandably, she's marrying an asshole with no job who works for them or whose father works for them. Her dad goes and picks Harry up off the street in his fancy car and they warn him that Sue expects a certain standard of living and that marriage means being totally unselfish. And we cut back to the present where Harry changes a tire in the pouring rain. Harry is trying to jack the car up and Sue asks if she can help and suggests he jack the car up higher when he flips out on her and accuses her of being a smartass and trying to arrange their whole lives. 
He tells her that he hears what people say about him at the store. Harry has been, that's what they call me. Harry has been and a smart ass wife. Harry has been? Well, I got something to tell them. Harry never was. Put it out, Susan. Because <laughs> it's like, oh, you're not like, it's not like you were the shit and you're not now. Yeah. You're just an asshole and you've yeah. always been an asshole. And she has to arrange their whole lives because he does jack shit. Yeah, like with this tire. This tire is flat and it needs to get changed. They're sitting in a fucking road. They're on a highway in the middle of the dark rain. Yeah. And he just walks away from the car with his family in it. Yeah. And leaves them in traffic. Yeah. So she has to do it herself. We cut back to the 40s. Sue and Harry are walking along railroad tracks when Sue finally comes to her senses. Maybe we shouldn't get married. Harry thinks he deserves her because he wants her the most. He says he's tried everything like basic hygiene, threatening to kill himself. Uh, he just muffins. Yeah, <laughs> brand muffins. He lays down on the tracks like, okay, well, I'll just wait for this train to come and hit me. And she starts crying because he's an irredeemable monster. What do you want me to actually do? Kill myself? Here, I'm here, sorry. okay? I'll lay here and let the train run me over. Are you happy now? Is that going to make you love me? What am I supposed to do? I give up. Stop it! And you want to hear the funniest joke of them all? I love you. I love you and I don't understand it. And then back in the present, Sue has to pick Harry up on this shitty rainy road instead of just running him over, which she could for sure have played off as an accident. Yeah. <laughs> it was dark and uh, it was raining and he didn't wear the, the reflectors. reflectors like I told him to. She obviously changed this tire herself in the rain because she's a responsible parent. She advises Harry to take off his wet clothes in the car. They pull into New York City in the morning and we get a montage of Harry driving like an asshole in New York. He's not letting taxis switch lanes. He's tailgating police horses. They check into their hotel, and in the bathroom mirror, Harry wonders how the other guys look. Right now, I can tell you they're going to look somehow 10 to 15 years older than him. <laughs> I thought I thought this was a joke. Like, when you when you get out of a fight, you know, like, yeah. what's the other guy you look like? You should see the other guy. Yeah, but no, he's, he's talking about his friends. Yeah. <laughs> Back in the 40s, we're reminded that Stan works with the local bookies, and we see a bit of this action. And we cut to Sue and Harry coming out of the justice of the peace, having made the biggest mistake of Sue's life. Both pairs of parents show up to shout at the kids for their foolishness. Uh, they just have a license. They didn't get married yet. Okay, I was confused about yes. that. Yeah, me too. Yeah, because I'm just like... They, it seemed like the parents were upset that the marriage had just happened, but then they talked about planning the wedding. And I'm yeah. like, what, what is so, happening? <laughs> and there's going to be more confusion later where I'm like, wait, did the marriage already happen or no? <laughs> but uh, right now it has not happened. They just went and got the marriage license. It sounds like Harry's mom thought that he was marrying Cheryl Herman, the queen of Tar Beach. And so she says that at one point, like, I can't believe you're marrying the queen of Tar Beach. And he's like, no, mom, you've got the wrong girl. And she's like, no, you've got the wrong girl. And uh, I miss that whole yeah, bit. But they don't even understand who she's marrying. Who but he's marrying. Yeah, both. While Harry's mom is chewing him out on the sidewalk, uh, his dad creeps over to his boss's fancy car and asks meekly if he should bother coming to work tomorrow. And Mr. Wellington just rolls the window up in his face like, nope, you're fired. Yeah. Don't so, come back to work. So this kid actually got his dad fired from his yeah. job. He got Como shot in the face and he got his dad fired from his job. Although during the wedding, some of those things might be quelled. Yes. Because it seems like everybody's pretty amicable at the wedding. It does Ish. seem that way. I don't know. I don't understand the next bit at all. Maybe this is a 40s thing. 
Stan borrows 200 bucks from his criminal friends to loan to Harry. Harry gives it to his father and says, give this to Mr. Wellington so the kids can have a beautiful wedding. $200, by the way, in 1944 was the equivalent of about $3,000 now. So he just borrowed $3,000 from a bookie to pay for his own wedding. Yeah. Why? So this this comes back in the wedding scene as how he's going to make the money back though okay so um in the wedding scene he's receiving card cards with right 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 like over and over and over and over again he's like wait a minute and he's like let me see the invitation he looks at the invitation and the invitation says something to the effect of uh that um harry might be going off to war and we need that he's headed to the front right need to support his wife need to support his wife and so they're getting all this cash in and that's going to be a return on the investment but that i don't the my problem is more that the three thousand dollars why does that seal the deal on the wedding like they were already going to get married it was up to them whether or not they got married so and the dad doesn't want her to marry this guy I, just because he's going to have to pay for the wedding he was going to have to I pay for alan's wedding i think that it was just showing that they're not a totally deadbeat family i don't know i i i have no explanation and and it's just one of the many infuriating things of this movie yeah uh harry's mom gives a deadly honest speech here and he isn't listening to it uh she just says this lady's out of your league she's she's a cut above you you can't afford to be married to this person dad wants to know where the money came from and harry doesn't answer him and apparently he hands it off to the boss she says that uh sue will want him to provide certain things that he won't be able to provide and she says that she's not coming to the wedding and she hates her i hate her (laughs) we cut to the wedding reception so the wedding already happened off yep. camera yeah yeah i think so and i think the mom didn't go to that this is a this Regardless is a love how, story yeah <laughs> and we skipped the wedding part i know and the mom makes comments earlier about um the wedding specifically oh no what the mr wellington first says or or mrs wellington first says like it's gonna happen in a house of god and his mom pipes up and is like that means a temple you know because they're jewish yeah and then we just kind of gloss over that yeah, whole thing. Yeah, because nobody goes to the ceremony. But, they just go to the party afterwards. But that's the, that seemed to be the most important part to the parents. And apparently the mom still didn't go to that, even though that would probably be the most important part to her. Right. Um, but yeah, then we, then we get the moment where he realizes everyone's giving him cash and that's weird. And that it's because Stan lied to everyone and said, give them cash because he's headed off to the war and she'll need it to survive. We cut to Harry's parents looking at a watch at home, and Mom, fully dressed for the ceremony, reiterates that she has no intention of attending. Just because I'm dressed like this doesn't mean I'm going. Meatloaf and Idiot dance with girls at the reception, and Meatloaf says they're going to make a fortune on this wedding. Idiot says that he paid for the license, so he should get a cut, and wanders away from his dance partner to make this argument to Stan. But I'm also confused if it really is, like a money-making scheme because that's also kind of horrible that you're also then taking the money away that was intended to be a gift a wedding gift yeah. to them and and it was like some sort of i don't know investment scheme it's yeah. just weird and if he's just gonna have to give the money back to the bookies because they spent all the money on this party so <laughs> they don't get anything out of it they just took out a, a huge loan to pay for a party and then they tricked the people at the party to pay it back 
but it wasn't like a cool party. It was a wedding reception. (laughs) Mrs. Lewis interrupts a father-daughter dance to ask that she make chicken soup for her son on Fridays. The parents showed up after the ceremony, though. That's, That's so weird that they act like, oh, well, look, she came after all. It's like, no, she didn't. She came to a party afterwards. Reluctantly. They carried her yeah. in on a chair. Yeah. Isn't we, that what you do at a Jewish wedding? Oh, that's right. That, but th- that was not the bride and groom on a oh. chair. That was the mother <laughs> being the dragged against her will into the wedding reception. We cut from Harry and Sue dancing to their wedding night, preparing for the sex he's been practicing on the neighborhood floozy. We fade to the present, and they have just finished having sex in their hotel room. He gets ready for his reunion and asks if she wants to come. She doesn't and says that she's going to take the kids to a movie. He insists that the kids don't really need her, but they are kind of young to just let them wander the city of New York by themselves. Yeah, the really gross city. She tells him. <laughs> so sorry to our New York City fans. No, no, no. no. in 1980, 19- it was. They also this is make Times this Square, point. New York. They also make this point in the movie that it's. I mean, they're yeah. they're going to the Bronx, and the cab driver doesn't even want to take them there later because yeah. it's not a good place to be. But she's insulted when he says the kids don't need her, and she says, "For Christ's sake, why didn't you go take a flying leap into your past?" Okay, I will. You know why? Because it's better. The second sign that the Bronx might not be what he remembers comes when his cab driver tells him to leave that neighborhood in his past. Harry looks very concerned in the cab. They drive past probably a murder scene being investigated by police. He says it doesn't even look like New York. But when they get around to Southern Boulevard, it's all boarded up storefronts and graffiti. He gets out of the cab and walks down the sidewalk for a bit. The driver gets out of the cab to, like, lean on it and wait for him. I feel like this guy would have just left immediately. Yeah. I mean, and it is the middle of the night, and it, it's pitch black there. There's garbage covering the streets. Just yeah. like, I wouldn't be getting out and wandering around this neighborhood. We cut back to the hotel room where Sue is waking up and realizing that Harry hasn't come home yet. Just when I thought I couldn't hate Harry more, we see him on a dark street corner being propositioned by a young hooker. We see Sue back at the hotel abandoning her children hopping into a cab to search for her husband. We see him coming out of the hotel in the red light district, having just fucked a prostitute. And he asks her out for some post-sex coffee because this is what he knows. He's like, all I know is that I'm supposed to practice on other people and just like my wife and be pleasant to her sometimes. Well, because I think that the, the, with his wife earlier, he was unsuccessful. Right. Yeah. But he was successful here. Right. If this movie doesn't end with Sue finding a genie and wishing her way back to the 40s to marry Alan Childs, then it's the saddest movie we've watched this year. (laughs) Sue sees Harry and the hooker walking to the coffee shop and takes the cab back to the hotel. We should have called this movie that. Harry and the hooker. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hookersons. Because, you know, New York City isn't that big of a city. You can just find people pretty quick. No, they're just... Well, I think she knew that when he was upset and walked out on them... That he the was street go- he would have gone That down. he was going to his old street where he hmm. used to live. So she kind of had an idea of where he'd be. Harry sneaks discreetly into their hotel room in the morning, and Sue is packing to leave. He tells her that he was just out walking all night. She makes fun of him for thinking the Bronx would look the same, and he gets all grumpy about it. She tells him, oh, you know what? I actually saw you with that hooker. And his response is super gross and weirdly angry at her. Well, I'm not impotent with hookers, Sue. I'm having a really hard time watching any more of this film. Because the title makes me think that they're going to reconcile, and that's gross. 
She makes him repeat the comment, and he tells her that he can get it up with hookers, but not her. The kids enter the room to ask if she's ready for Chinatown, and she asks how many he's been with in the last five years, and he says thousands, and they're just continuing this argument in front of the kids. Yeah. She goes for a little walk before the family trip to Chinatown and looks fondly at locations where she went on dates with young Harry, who is only slightly better than the monster she's married to now. We see Harry enter a restaurant in a three-piece suit with a pipe like an asshole. He notices Meatloaf, who is amazingly still alive 36 years later. Was this supposed to come out in 74 and be a 30-year reunion? I don't understand. Harry shakes hands with the whole gang around the table. Back at the hotel, Sue finds Harry's ugly sketches of buildings and starts flipping through them. These shitty scribblings will surely make up for his inadequacies as a person. Back at the reunion, we learn that Stan is in a Swiss prison in Geneva for 10 years. I, at this point, like, I was like, so you don't even have Stan back in the group? No, but the Mooch is there. Yeah. Who didn't say a word. Yeah, I I don't understand the point of this subplot that he's in prison other than like, oh, because he's a con artist. You know, it's not like bookies aren't still a thing. Right. Yeah. And and so I, I, I think it's weird that he went on some kind of European grift. I also think it's weird that in a movie that's entirely about a high school reunion that you wouldn't have the the main character best friend guy from yeah. the past yeah. there mm-hmm. in the present. It's very weird. They start a conversation about the breasts that they miss from the 1940s when Alan Childs walks in and takes a seat. They didn't hang out with this guy's kids, well, that, so that, it's weird that he would be invited to this thing. That, that's why I was yeah. under the impression that they were all went to high school together. Yeah. I don't think so. I mean, Especially since Harry stole this guy's fiance. Like, who called him yeah. and was like, want to come meet with us and the guy that you hate? But it gives me a sliver of hope that Alan and Sue might get back together. There's so much crosstalk here that I can't hear what anybody's saying or what Childs is doing now. Sue shows their son all the crappy buildings, and it sounds like she's falling back in love with Harry. But thankfully, her son points out that the drawings are shit and I, that the I buildings so, are boring. I was so glad they called yeah. this out because yeah. the drawings are bad. And I was just like, are they pretending that these are good? Yeah. Oh, no, no, no. They are act- They think they're bad, too. But for some reason, she really likes them. I don't get it. Uh, She's uh, just happy that he's working on yeah, them. I, I, I should, we should point out that the drawings themselves as drawings are okay. But, but the as buildings building are designs stupid. are terrible. Yeah. Well, they're just rectangles. But Th- as architect, but as architectural drawings, they're shit. No, oh, uh, uh, totally agreed. Yeah. <laughs> but but yeah, but if I was like just saying, oh, he's got some nice shading there, like like it's like I'm I'm impressed yeah. with, with his I artistic mean, talent. If, if 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 you if you brought that picture to me, I'm like, this is pretty nice, Richard. <laughs> yeah. But if an architect <laughs> that I was supposed to hire brought that to me, I'd be like, yeah, I'm not hiring you, buddy. <laughs> Would you put it on the refrigerator? <laughs> yeah. Sure. <laughs> If someone brought me one of those pages and said, do you want the actual building for free that I drew on this page? I would say, no. Keep it away from me. If she had any sense left, she would toss all this shit out the window right now, but instead she rushes out to find her husband, excited enough by his continued dreaming to overlook all the philandering. At the table in the restaurant, somebody mentions that Idiot heads a huge advertising firm now. Alan calls Harry the quiet Casanova, and they start talking about how he landed the two prettiest girls in the Bronx. Unfortunately, they're done talking about Cheryl Herman before Sue finds them. I really wanted this to be the moment where she finds out that he was having sex with another girl that entire time. Yeah, right? They ask how Sue's doing, and Harry says that Sue is excellent. Alan interjects that he's heard rumors that things weren't going well, 
and Harry is too stupid to realize that Alan probably heard these rumors from Sue herself. <laughs> so he stands up to brag about how great their relationship is to the entire table. Not because he gives a shit about his wife, but to save face in front of the buddies who might yeah, think that his marriage is crumbling. That was the most infuriating part because you would think that he's making this heartfelt speech that she's going to overhear to to woo her back. But because, he's lying. Yeah. So it's not, clearly bullshit. It's so it's so infuriating why she cares about him at all. Yeah. He brags that they make love everywhere and all the time. And we see Sue sort of collapse into a chair elsewhere in the restaurant as she listens to the rest of this dumb speech. Harry continues saying that they're both better at sex than they were, that Sue is a good mother, they have the best kids, and she runs the whole clothing store on her own. She's so flattered by the speech that she forgets that these are just lies to impress his friends, and she doesn't realize that they don't have sex all the time, and that he just flat out made that part up. So he probably made up the part about her being a good mom or the other stuff. Yeah. He probably hates her. I mean, I guess at least he gives her credit for running the store, that he yeah. just helps. So that could be con- that could be conceived as, well, that would be emasculating to admit. Sure. Then, when Alan calls Harry out for not being a big architect, Harry starts to get a little more somber and realistic. He admits that he never made it as an architect because they had kids and started the clothing store as a stepping stone toward that goal, but then the store took over their lives. But now, he admits to the table that he never really put up a fight, not because... He was super supportive, but because even he knows the drawings are shitty. No, it's because he's a lazy asshole. Right, but that's that's my point. He didn't make a sacrifice. He wants her to think that he made a sacrifice. Yeah, right. He wants her to think that he sacrificed his dreams, but he knew that he never had a chance as an architect because he's shitty at everything. He has no skill set. He stands suddenly to announce that the real truth about him and Sue is, and she rushes over to stop him because she's like, no, 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 don't tell these people that you just fucked a prostitute like hours ago. let's just let's just pretend things are great between us it might even be the same day (laughs) they get really close to a kiss and then he turns to the table and says i can't get it up anymore so i went to a prostitute last night and we're getting divorced credits that's not what happens they just kiss they kiss and he is forgiven for cheating on her without ever having apologized they make dumb plans outside the restaurant to disassemble their successful store yeah well, also, this is his first meeting with his friends in 35 years, and he was there for maybe a half hour. Yeah. yeah. And that is like, he's leaving? They're leaving already? It's like, how are you guys doing? Here's a bunch of lies and bullshit. Gonna leave with my wife now. Yeah. Bye. But we just see them sitting outside the restaurant, and he's like, hey, we could just sell the store and do different things with the money that we got from selling the store. And she's like, I could be a teacher like I've always wanted, and I'll let you run the store into the ground by using awful paintings of buildings instead of mannequins to sell clothes you idiot and then that's the end of the movie hi how was the movie dumb (laughs) writer director steven paul you're not going to believe this this is his first screenplay yeah yep he also wrote a lot more garbage like slapstick of another kind which he also directed in 1982 or 84 depending on your market and Never Too Young to Die, starring John Stamos and Gene Simmons. Yeah, Gene Simmons in this movie is a hermaphroditic gang leader who... It's like Christopher Lee in Serial. He like murders like this guy's John Stamos' dad or something like that, and he's out for... I don't know. It's it's some crazy stuff. I watched the trailer. I don't don't know. We won't get to it for a few years. Did you... You need to tell them about Slapstick, though. Slapstick... (laughs) Slapstick of another kind is is uh just another 
nail in the coffin of Madeline Kahn and Jerry Lewis's careers. It was two two arguably funny people. <laughs> Madeline Kahn is hilarious. Yeah. Jerry Lewis is a nightmare. And they're siblings who are extremely ugly, but they're when they aliens. touch their heads together... They're twin aliens. Are they aliens? Yes. I didn't know they were aliens. I think that's what it said. But they touch their heads together and they become super geniuses. And they tell everybody what to do. Speaking of super geniuses... Yeah. This guy also wrote the story for Baby Geniuses and somehow parlayed that into five movies and a TV show so far. After the 80s, he mostly produced including all the baby genius stuff, a lot of features you've never heard of until 2011's Ghostwriter Spirit of Vengeance, and he somehow attached himself to the upcoming fourth Expendables movie, which I'm hoping is a baby genius's crossover. <laughs> and he was a producer on the the Ghost in the Shell movie. And was he really? Yeah. Wait, the you're talking about the Scarlett Johansson Yeah. One? But I want to see the Expenda babies. Writer, Susanna York, <laughs> uh, I'm assuming she just was like, no, this is stupid, this line. I'm going to change it I, for the I entire... I imagine that is why she has a writing credit on yeah. this. Is she was just in the scenes and she's like, we can do better, guys. Yeah. We're going we're gonna to change this. Don't worry. You don't have to write a single woman. I'll rewrite all of these lines. You could tell Michelle Pfeiffer what to say. You can't yeah. tell me what to say. Somebody somebody forgot to clue her in on the scene that was happening before she got there at the restaurant to tell right. her how terrible an ending it was. She just recently played Jane Turner in The Awakening where she gave birth to a mummy baby. She's also Lara in the Christopher Reeves Superman movies. She's Alice in They Shoot Horses, Don't They, for which she got her Oscar nomination. And she's Margaret in A Man for All Seasons. She also just finished another movie with Elliot Gould in 78 called The Silent Partner, which actually has a pretty awesome premise. Have you heard of this one, The Silent no. Partner? Basically, a bank teller played by Elliot Gould anticipates an upcoming robbery, so he steals a bunch of money himself so that he can blame it on the robbery. Mm. But then the robber figures out what he did and starts stalking him for the money. Okay. But uh, seems good. it seems like a funny one. Uh, the story is written by Hank Paul. Uh, yeah, so that that is even more upsetting, too. Yeah, that, which that is you said the father of the director. Memoirs. Yeah, so he it's just like, he wrote down in his diary about how he cheated on their mom, and then his son was like, this is tawdry stuff, Dad. Can I make it into a movie? And he's like, here's a sure. blank check, make idiot. Make sure your mom casts it. Yeah. <laughs> What? <laughs> I'll even name a character after you, idiot. <laughs> the composer was uh, Michael Legrand, or Michelle Legrand, who composed The Thomas Crown Affair, Ice Station Zebra, Wuthering Heights, Summer of 42, Brian Song, Never Say Never Again, and Yentl. Uh, but this first. Elliot Gould was Harry Lewis, present day, and uh, I think you're correct yeah. in your theory. So my theory is that they... they because the... You know, Steve Stephen Paul's brother. Yes. Uh, what's his name? Something Paul. Um, Stuart, Stuart Paul. Stuart Paul is uh, the Pompadour, the young young Harry in this movie. I think they started with him because when you write a movie and put your all your family members in it, you start with casting your brother as the lead role, and then you find somebody to look like him older. So yeah. Elliot Gould was probably cast second. I think so. Um, probably even after they cast his daughter. Yeah, but how do you how do you get Elliot Gould in this movie? I don't understand. He's had a good enough career up until this point. Why is he doing this? Well, he's coming off of Last Flight of Noah's Ark, and the 80s were not kind to him. He had wrapped up all of his fun 70s stuff by then. Um, and he had just done this movie with Susanna York, so maybe she brought him on 
where he did it as yeah, a favor. I want to know what, what hooks they had into her. Like, why did that happen either? Because I don't understand why she would be in this movie. They, they like, they, she must be a friend of the family or something. Like, I don't yeah. get it. Uh, we had Elliot Gould earlier this year as Trapper John and MASH for our January Patreon. He's also in The Long Goodbye, Nashville, A Bridge Too Far, Capricorn One, The Silent Partner, which I mentioned, The Muppet Movie. Uh, we had him earlier this year in Last Flight of Noah's Ark, and he'll be back next year for The Devil and Max Devlin and Dirty Tricks. He's also in the Ocean's Eleven reboot movies, and he's the father of Monica and Ross on Friends, Mr. <laughs> Geller. Kay Ballard played Mrs. Lewis. She's Coach Betsy in Freaky Friday. She's Marge in The Girl Most Likely. She's stepsister Portia in 1957's Cinderella. Also, the mayor in Baby Geniuses. Of course she is. Stuart Paul, brother of our director here, played Pompadour. Um, he is only in other films produced by his family. Michelle Pfeiffer played Sue Wellington. The film claims to introduce Michelle Pfeiffer, but we saw her earlier this year as Susie Q in Hollywood Nights. She will be back as Cordelia next year in Charlie Chan and the Curse of the Dragon Queen for some reason. She took over for Olivia Newton-John in Grease 2. She's Scarface's wife with the polluted womb. And she was Burton's Catwoman. She is currently Janet Van Dyne, the OG Wasp in the MCU. Kathy Tolbert played Cheryl Herman. We saw her very briefly in The Exterminator earlier this year. She was eating breakfast next to the mob boss as he was complaining that the funny pages aren't as good as they used to be. <laughs> Herbert Rudley played Mr. Wellington. He's the captain of the guard in Court Jester with Danny Kaye. He is Ira Gershwin in Rhapsody in Blue and Franz Marnette in The Seventh Cross. Bonnie Paul, uh, the sister of the director, played Hilary Lewis. And uh, she also plays Margaret Cage in Karate Dog. Karate Dog is a film that we mentioned in our review of Oh Heavenly Dog as another movie where Chevy Chase does the voice of a talking dog who <laughs> solves murders. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you'd like to hear someone review that, you should look up a podcast called Movies of the Meek, where these guys review movies of the week. And they happen to cover Karate Dog, which seems like it could be a direct sequel to Oh Heavenly Dog. Tony O'Dell played Donnie Lewis. That's the, the son. Uh, he is not to be confused with Dennis O'Dell, the EP of our recent Heaven's Gate, or David O'Dell, the writer of the film before that, Running Scared. He's also Jimmy in the Karate Kid movies and the new Cobra Kai show. And he played Ferdy Meisel in Chopping Mall. Peter Shrum played Meatloaf. He's Fat Daddy in Galaxina, he's Ray in Eliminators, and he's Lloyd in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Ben Frank played Cabby number one. Is this the guy that doesn't want to take him to the Bronx? I'm assuming. This is our third Ben Frank title after Foxes and Don't Answer the Phone, which I believe came out on the same day. Marvin Katzoff played Como. Do you know who Marvin Katzoff is? No. Leon! From Midnight Madness, oh, yeah. the guy right. who planned the whole game. There you go. Leon! Please, hold your applause. Uh, but he looks different here because he's combing his hair over. John Deal played Beaver. I don't think he says anything, but he's Lieutenant Kowalski in Stargate. He's Cooper in Jurassic Park 3. He'll, he'll play Cruiser in Stripes next year. Arnie in Joysticks from Without Warning director Graydon Clark in 83. He's Detective Larry Zito on Miami Vice. And he played G. Gordon Liddy in Oliver Stone's Nixon. Hmm. Twink Kaplan played Melinda. That's uh, Sue's friend. 
She plays Rona in Look Who's Talking, and she's, of course, Miss Toby Geist in Clueless. Remember that character? the weird looking teacher that they set up with oh yeah that's her best friend she's a total babe she's a total babe she also plays crying flower customer in a night at the roxbury i'm assuming she comes into their store that sells only vines or something i can't remember what the butavis are selling in that movie uh david caruso plays young neighborhood boy uncredited i didn't didn't see see him. him in here no but we covered his credits in without warning if you're curious um that's everybody i had for this one this movie's dumb it was badly written um the people who made it deserve to be mocked because they wasted a lot of money making a terrible movie on purpose and don't watch it (laughs) don't watch it because it's essentially a student film and it's bad so that's down for me oh yeah it's a down uh, it's it's way down, way down. Letterboxed, what are you thinking, Richard? Uh, I have it at number 134, uh, just below the apple and just above Happy Hooker Goes Hollywood. Where do you have it, Jess? Oh, I have to go to the second page. One second. <laughs> it is at 143, below the octagon but above coast to coast. I have it at 148 of 148. It's the new bottom of my list. Wow. Because it's basically a student film that wasn't directed by Brian De Palma. So (laughs) it goes under home movies. So home movies is second to last on your list? Okay. Because I would much rather sit down and watch home movies again. Oh, I would too. Home movies is a couple above this but i'm just saying man up the academy deserves still deserves to and well actually i has there were jokes in up the academy they were bad but they were jokes yeah i don't know and and nothing personal still sits at the bottom of my list because we're clubbing baby seals like actually clubbing baby seals in that movie this one is just a guy cheating on his wife over and over and over again for a whole movie and she falls in love with him twice the title implies that this happens multiple times (laughs) still I don't know. I'd still rather watch this than the guys of Gorp screaming at each other all day. I'll take that screaming all day. I think that's everything for this one. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. Please consider rating us on iTunes to help people find the show. And if you take the time to leave us a review, we will thank you personally in an upcoming episode. If you're feeling especially generous, you can also support the show through Patreon.com slash VintageVideoPodcast. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Visitor which IMDb describes like so. The soul of a young girl with telekinetic powers becomes the prize in a fight between the forces of God and the devil. I'm not sure that that is correct, but I'm also not unsure. Yeah. We leave you now with a trailer for The Visitor.
Her name is Katie Collins. And she'll be eight years old. 